You are listening to the sermon stream of the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com sermons. The text tonight is uh, from Galatians 3. We're going to be in verse 24, which we ended at last time, reading down to verse 29. So Galatians 3, beginning verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So here we see the great uh, blessings uh, that, that are going to be ours in Christ, uh, the uh, belonging, the inheritance, the salvation, uh, the goodness in all respects. And so, uh, again, we note going back uh, that Paul in Galatians chapter 3 and chapter 4, he is in the uh, right in the middle of the argumentation of uh, justification uh, by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, as it says in uh, chapter 2, verse 16, for we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And he had gone on to say, as a matter of fact, those who want to live by the law are under a curse. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the workers of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. So uh, it's not a blessing to be under the law. It is a curse. The blessings are in Christ. So last time was the verses uh, 19 down, and we read to verse 24. Why the law then? That's the question Paul asked and answered. He said it was because of transgression. So like uh, Paul would tell Timothy, the law was not made for the righteous man, but it was made for the unrighteous. And it was not to give life. It was to shut up all under sin. So they might see that they needed the true life that was in Christ. And he compared uh, the law uh, to the pedagogue, uh, the, the one who uh, had custody of the children, delivering them to schools, delivering them uh, to the place they needed to be, uh, making sure they had their lessons done. And all of those things. So uh, various translations called it a disciplinarian, a guardian, or a custodian. Going so far as to say we were captive under the law and imprisoned. That's my New American Standard in verse 23. Uh, Or saying that we are a ward under this disciplinarian. And so this guardian, this disciplinarian, this pedagogue was there until Christ came. But here's the good news. Christ has now come. So verse 24, so then the law was our guardian 
until Christ came. In order, just like it said back in chapter 2, verse 16, that we might be justified by faith. So the law, the guardian to bring us to faith, that by that faith in Christ Jesus, we might be justified. So tonight, Galatians 3, from verse 24 down to the end of the chapter, delivered to faith in Christ. So the guardian's job and the guardian for those who would accept the guardian's leadership, uh, accept what the pedagogue was teaching, get the lessons that the law was intended to teach. All that was to bring people to faith in Christ that thereby they may be justified. So we're thinking about those who are uh, happy that uh, school is over. Uh, They're no longer under their pedagogue. They're no longer under their teacher. That disciplinarian or that old school marm who had them under tight control is now gone. And so the, the guardian is gone. And the law in that regard as a guardian that is gone. So it's, a, it's another way to, to say what Paul has tried to clearly say and repeatedly say, salvation is not of the law. Salvation is of Christ. And so those who now have come to this new freedom, those who have come to now this end of the line, uh, they, are, uh, they should be quite happy to have reached this new level of maturity and accomplishment of being led to where the pedagogue leads. So we think about the uh, end of a, of a school uh, career. We, we think about uh, the graduation day. Uh, we put on the academic robes, and at the end of the ceremony, what do we all do with our hats? We throw them in celebration, glad to be done. And uh, uh, if they're a little younger, maybe they sing the old, the old school children's song, uh, No More Pencils, No More Books. No more teachers' dirty looks, right? Yay, we are done. Of course, as that continues and gets a little more violent, uh, kick the tables, kick the chairs, uh, kick the teacher down the stairs. Okay, maybe not. (laughs) So we're done with the old school marm. But don't we still respect her? Don't we still respect the lesson she taught us? Don't we still value her and her contribution along the way, right? Now, there's nobody wants to go on their graduation road trip of celebration and take the old teacher with them, right? No, nobody wants to do that. But when you see the old teacher and you remember the lessons that she taught, uh, shouldn't it be with, you know, precious memory? Shouldn't it be with respect? Shouldn't it be uh, with appreciation? And so that's the law. The law is appreciated. The law is valued. The lesson of the law is is something we should hold in many ways near and dear to our hearts the rest of our days, but we don't want to take it with us to the next stage, right? We don't want to take the high school teacher with us to college. We didn't want to take that favorite elementary school teacher with us when we went to high school, right? We left them behind. They'd done their job. We value them for that, but we don't take them with us. And so all those teachers that I spent hours and hours and hours with uh, as a youth, I think about them from time to time, fondly sometimes, not fondly other times, uh, but I think about the things they taught, but there's hardly any of them that I want to, you know, uh, open up my guest room to and say, here, come live with me and live here. I don't want to do that. And so it is with the law. Or we think about this uh, hymn, free from the law, oh, happy condition, Jesus has 
bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace has redeemed us once for all. So we're glad to be done with, rid of uh, the law, uh, but not in a way that we would disrespect it, uh, in a way, though, that we would honor it. We recall what Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.14. He said, you, however, in in contrast to some of these faithless men, imposters, these men who are just doing bad and getting worse, you, however, continue in the things that you've learned. Well, what had Timothy learned? Timothy had learned, we find out in the book of Timothy, Timothy had learned from childhood uh, the things about salvation, the things of faith from his mother and grandmother. You continue in the things which you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings. So that was long before he was a Christian. This is talking about the, the place of the law. From childhood you knew the sacred writings, which were able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. And then the famous part of this passage, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate or perfect or complete, equipped for every good work. We always read the last part of that because we apply uh, the, the uh, that part of all scriptures inspired of God and, and profitable. But we use that as our, our Pardon. We use that as argument in talking about the sufficiency of Scripture, in the inspiration of Scripture, in the origin of Scripture. There's a lot of good things that we can use that passage for. But in its context, it is referring not to New Testament Scriptures first, although it fully applies, but it's referring to that which Timothy knew from, a, from his childhood, which was his pre-gospel condition. So it was the law that he had learned from his mother and his grandmother, And notice what Paul again said it does in verse 15. It gives you wisdom that leads to salvation. The scripture, the law, law and the prophets, gives wisdom leading to salvation in Christ. It doesn't give salvation. It gave wisdom that leads to salvation. This was the point of contention that Jesus had with the Jewish uh, people in his day, uh, those who use the scripture to argue against him, those who use the scripture not to lead them to Christ, but through a mishandling and misapplication of scripture, actually try to use the scripture to keep themselves and others away from Christ, which is a complete misuse of it. But Jesus said this in John five thirty nine, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me and you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. Well, there was the wrong use of Scripture, thinking it was sufficient for salvation and life. When we already saw last week, it did not give life in the Old Testament, the old system. But it did what Paul said, gave wisdom that led to salvation. And so every time the Apostle Paul went to synagogues, preached Jesus from the Law and the Prophets, and people on that basis believed in Jesus so as to be saved, the purpose of the law was completely fulfilled in them. They had wisdom that led them to salvation in Christ. And so the law had this wonderful aspect of giving wisdom leading to salvation. 
But what did it not do? Didn't give salvation. Where did salvation come? Jesus said, these scriptures bear witness of me. And Paul said here uh, in Galatians that you're justified by faith. Or Paul told Timothy, it's a wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So the faith that saves and the way is the way that's in Christ. So first thing we find here that by faith in Christ, we're justified. What do we find in the law? We didn't find justification. We didn't find life. What do we find by faith in Jesus Christ? We find justification. So the first thing is in verse 24, we find, uh, or excuse me, verse uh, 24 and 25, uh, we are no longer uh, under, uh, now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian because as it said in verse 24, we are justified by faith. So we're justified and we are freed, as we've already spoken. Free from the pedagogue, free from the disciplinarian, free from that uh, harshness uh, that was in the law uh, to the freedom and joy that's in Christ, uh, as that old hymn, Free from the Law, O Blessed, O Happy Condition, continues. It says, Now we are free, there's no condemnation. Jesus provides perfect salvation. Come unto me, O hear his sweet call. Come, he saves us once and for all. Children of God, O glorious calling, surely his grace will keep us from falling. Passing from death to life at his call, blessed salvation once and for all. So here's the freedom. The freedom from the law, freedom in Christ. Now later, chapter 5, Paul will anticipate what some would do uh, with their freedom, misusing it, saying, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for evil, but through love serve one another. Again, the second part of that old uh, children's song, you know, uh, not just it's no more pencils, no more books, no more teachers' dirty looks, but some do want to kick the tables, kick the chairs, kick the teacher down the stairs. It's not that. It's not a freedom to do anything and everything, but it is free from these restrictions and these uh, requirements of the law. So we are freed of that. We are justified in Christ, verse 24. We are freed in Christ, and we are no longer under the guardian in verse 25. And then we move on to verse 26. We are made to be sons. Uh, I know that many would say it, children, although there's a good reason here to use the masculine. But in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. Now, this point will be talked about at much greater length beginning in chapter 4. We're going to leave a lot of that discussion for there. But for now, just look at the contrast between verse 23, where you're a ward or you're a captive, and what you are now, you're a son. So you go from the state of being a ward, being shut up, being a captive. And again, we use the school comparison because Paul brought it up with the pedagogue. How many children, while they're going to school, say, well, they treat me like I'm a prisoner down there? Well, sometimes they do, and sometimes they have to, right? But, but how many of us felt imprisoned in school, but now we're free? Well, under the law, then, there's a similar relation. There's a captiveness to it. There was being a ward to it. But now, as sons of God, full of maturity, uh, being taught the lessons, 
that the, the pedagogue, the old school marm, the, the disciplinarian was trying to teach us we can be free. And so it, it's a poor fellow and a poorly served fellow who gets to maturity without having been taught the lessons. Well, now they've been taught the lessons of the law and they can, they are taught to know God and they are taught to know Christ. Again, going back to the gospel of John, Jesus there in a different discussion said, John six forty five, as it's written in the prophets, they will all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. And so Jesus said, the law said, you're going to be taught. The law would teach them. And who is those that are taught? The ones that have been taught and the ones who have taken the lesson to heart. They're the ones who are going to come to me because that's what the lesson was about. You know, Christ, once we, uh, and you look at uh, the gospel of Luke, where Jesus on the road to Emmaus uh, opened the eyes of understanding of those disciples who were with him. And he showed them all that the law and the prophets had to say about him. Once you come to understand that uh, the Christ is the center of the Old Testament as well as the New, how how often can you find Christ and see Christ? Well, it's just all over it. And the Old Testament, and real understanding of the Old Testament, opens up uh, with a Christ-centric, uh, I guess Christocentric, fancy word there, but a Christ-centric, Christocentric view of the Old Testament opens up the true meaning of it. And you see Christ in thing after thing. You see Christ uh, in in the prophecies, of course, but you see Christ in the figures. And, and you see Christ uh, with them so often. And Paul would go so far as to say, First uh, Corinthians 10, when the children of Israel got water in the desert, who was the rock that gave them the water? That rock that followed them was Christ. And so if they're taught of God, then they can come and be sons of God and sons uh, in the true sense, not wards, not captives, but as free and mature, uh, graduated sons, uh, you know, like the, uh, the, the, the kid who finishes school, gets whatever schooling is necessary, and he joins his father in the family business. And he's no longer treated like a child. Now, he, again, some might chafe a little bit, depending on their dad and the business involved. But the kid who finishes school and he uses his schooling and his learning to now participate in the family business, the business that he will one day run and the business will be his. Well, that's our should be our view of the church and the spiritual things that that we have been brought on as as part of the family, as as full partners in this uh, great endeavor uh, that, that has been graciously opened and given to us. But we can do that because we know him. And we, we're sons now. We're not wards. We're not captive. We're not slaves. So again, uh, Hebrews 8, speaking of this new covenant that will come, where they, there will be an equality uh, and there will be a knowledge. Uh, there will be a maturity, uh, not like the old covenant, Hebrews 8, quoting Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, 10. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I'll put my law in their hearts and I'll write them on their, put their law in the, their minds and I'll write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they'll be my people. Now that's a common promise going all the way back to Leviticus. 
And they will not teach. Here's the part that directly goes with this. They will not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord, for all of them will know me from the least to the greatest. And I'll be merciful to their iniquities and remember their sins no more. So they're all going to know me. They're all going to be in this condition of sonship. They're all going to be in this condition uh, of a of a taught uh, and a willing follower and learner. And so they're going to be my sons, and they're going to do that through faith in Christ Jesus. Under the law, they weren't sons of God in this way. Now, I think we could probably find, if we search the Old Testament, we could probably find uh, God speaking certainly of the children of Israel as his children and as his family. We can find some of that, and we have prophecies uh, that, that are quoted in the New Testament to that effect now applied to the church. But this kind of intimate, this kind of intimate thing of he is my father, that I can go to him and say, Abba, Father, uh, that I can pray like Jesus taught in the Lord's Prayer, say, Our Father who art in heaven. And one scholar of the uh, New Testament went back, a biblical scholar went back, he looked through all the Jewish literature and all the Old Testament, and he said he just cannot find in Jewish literature uh, and in Jewish scripture, he just can't find anybody addressing God the uh, like Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer, our Father. Yet what did Jesus teach us all to do? Have this direct and intimate connection now as sons, not as wards, not as captive under the law, not as under this restraining principle uh, of, of the law as a guardian, as a, the school mom, the disciplinarian, but as sons. So we're in Christ. And in verse 24, 5, and 6, we find we're justified and we're freed and we're made his sons. But the blessings are going to continue. In the next three verses, and I realize these go at survey pace, and so we to some degree will as well, because each one of these concepts could be a lengthy lesson in itself, and we chase down all these threads and tied them from the Old Testament beginning and uh, how they're knit together and how they finally are woven into the wonderful tapestry that's all fulfilled in Christ. But we'll go like Paul at a bit of a survey pace. But we're going to find the next three verses. There's ways in which we are with Christ, that we are in Christ, and they'll conclude that we are Christ. So our blessings now continue. Already having, in, again, been freed, and justified and made children, now in Christ, we are right and properly clothed. And the way we're clothed is with Christ, into Christ, and put on Christ, as though he is uh, clothing uh, for us. For, here's an explanation of, I think, how we got to be these sons and how we expressed our, our faith and what faith causes us to do because it's taught and instructed and commanded uh, by Jesus and the apostles. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So again, not a, bab not, not a passage that's telling people to get baptized, uh, like a number of passages mentioning baptism uh, in the epistles uh, uh, by the writings of the apostles. It's telling you, looking back, it tells you what baptism did. 
So this is not, hey, get baptized for this. It's, but because you were baptized, this is what you got. Well, what did you get? You uh, were baptized into Christ and you put on Christ. We'll take the two parts of this baptism together for, for purposes of our discussion tonight. We'll understand that baptism is immersion uh, uh, as the uh, all the dictionaries and all the context is pretty clear about. We will we'll take that for this, with this audience as assumed. So we've been immersed into Christ. Well, we do that when we are baptized in his name. Uh, think about the Great Commission. Uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, we also think about uh, this passage, Romans chapter 6, a, a long section on baptism, Romans 6, verse 3, beginning. Or do you not know, this is another one, looking back to the fact we were baptized, or do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ, there's the same thing, baptized into Christ, have been baptized into his death? And here's a bit of an explanation of how the baptism is into Christ and into his death. Therefore, having been buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we'll also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old body, our old self, was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, and we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now if we've died with Christ... We believe we'll also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. So we're baptized into Christ. We're baptized into the death of Christ, which, of course, that fits the picture of immersion quite well. Is this compared to uh, dying, uh, being buried, and being raised again to a new life, which, of course, is... Uh, uh, that's the great act of human uh, of Christian history and actually of human history. That's the great act of Christ after his death for us, buried, and on the third day, according to the scripture, raised again to a new and everlasting life. And so we, re- we, we imitate that picture, expressing our confidence that that did happen with Christ, that will happen also for us. We confess that that, that was uh, done in Christ. We reenact that. Uh, through baptism, and are baptized into him and into his death. And so we rise there to walk in a new life. Well, the good thing about the new life is here from Galatians 3 and 27 is uh, we get some nice new clothes to go with it. And so we leave the old behind and we get new clothes for the new life because it says we are put on Christ. We have clothed ourselves with Christ, some translations will tell us. And there is a long history of uh, clothing metaphors, actually sometimes literally literal clothing as well, through the scripture, just the briefest of rundowns. When you find out, or when, when Adam and Eve, when they found out uh, that they had sinned, what's one of the first things they realize? They're naked. What, what is their first response regarding that when the Lord appears? hide themselves in shame because they're naked. And then in that story, God also provides them at the end. God provides them clothing. And so 
nakedness is a reminder of our sin. And that's true just about every time it's tried. Why is there an inherent shame with nakedness? I think part of it is put within us as a reminder of sin. It's one of the terrible things about uh, you know immorality and, and immodesty is that people are so hardened in sin, uh, like uh, the scriptures say, they no longer know how to blush, but uh, they're rebelling against the fact, they're rejecting uh, what their conscience is naturally telling them, that they're in sin. Well, any right-thinking person like that, when Jesus healed the man, uh, there who was terrorizing the passers-by on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, you know, he was naked. After Jesus healed him, he was in his right mind and clothed. Well, uh, what we find is, is that anybody with any thought tries to clothe themselves. Isaiah famously talked about those uh, who tried to have their own righteousness, and it was like a filthy garment in Isaiah 64. Uh, also, though, uh, we find when Jesus uh, prepares his bride for himself, in Ephesians 5, what does he give her? He gives her uh, white linen, pure and clean. Uh, he gives her uh, costly uh, garments without spot or wrinkle or uh, any such thing. Uh, to the church at Laodicea, Jesus says, you know, you need to buy for me clothes. Uh, you need to buy for me uh, clothes to, to, to clothe yourself that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And then to those who overcome in Revelation 19, there's clothing given, uh, fine linen, bright and clean, which is said to be the righteous acts of the saints. So being baptized in Christ, we are clothed with Christ. So, so here's our union and here's our provision that comes uh, with faith in Christ and its natural product, which uh, Paul sees as baptism just as Paul himself was taught when he believed, uh, you know, to, to be baptized and wash away his sins, calling on the name of the Lord. And uh, Peter would go so far as to say, baptism saves you. There's this natural connection of Christ and baptism. Uh, to John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ with the act, the ritual, the, the rite of baptism. So we in Christ uh, have clothed ourselves with Christ. So we are with Christ. And we also find then, that we are now in Christ. And so we have, we have uh, been baptized into him. Uh, we have uh, put, it, put him on. And then in Christ, what we find in verse 28, is there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is not male or female. And for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So now we're all one in Christ. And so one of the great things that the law of Moses did was, <coughs> pardon, the law of Moses segregated, segregated harshly the Jew from the Gentile. Now, it wasn't such a harsh segregation that Gentiles with belief could not come, proselyte themselves, become Jews. But it was, really wasn't an open invitation to do that either. Uh, but the the Jews who... Uh, knew the people of God and came to know God through them. Some of them did proselyte, but Ju Judaism is not really an evangelistic religion. Christianity is. Judaism was not. Judaism was a segregated religion. It was for those who were descendants of Abraham. And now, again, it wasn't that they uh, always hated everybody else. 
Uh, there were times when some Jews got awful proud of that. And they said some awful, horrible things about Gentiles, such as, you know, Gentiles were just created to stoke the fires of hell. Uh, there was no good purpose for Gentiles. It's sort of like, you know, the idea, I don't know if they ever said this, but like it was sometimes said about, uh, you know, the Indians, the cow cowboys occasionally would say, oh, there's no good Indian, but a dead Indian. Uh, it, it wasn't as though all the Jews always felt like that. As a matter of fact, a lot of times the Jews got in trouble when they didn't feel at all like that, when they wanted to join with the Gentiles and they wanted to marry them, right? How many times has that come up? And so the Jews had to constantly be reminded uh, that their law said separate from the nations, right? Be a separate people. But now that they're no longer under this guardian, there's no longer under this, uh, this, this caretaker uh, who's going to uh, guide them. Uh, now that this is open and this is free for anybody to come, under this same condition of faith. So there's no, there's no kind of racial, racial, ethnic, national, take your pick. Uh, there's, there's nothing of that, uh, which separates anybody from Christ. No Jew, no Greek. There's also in this regard, uh, no difference between a slave man or a free man. And so the, your social condition and the, that status and that would be about as uh, radical a status difference as you could have, given here uh, example. Uh, that doesn't matter either. And so uh, if you have faith, you can come. And then also, there's no gender difference. There's no sexual difference in this. Male and female. They have equal access through Christ to God and the blessings that come in Christ. Now, uh, based on uh, different things. You, you might have different roles and you might have peculiar duties, but uh, as one summarized, he said, it doesn't matter your race, your place, or your face, you can all come to Christ. And so everyone can come to Christ. There is no difference in there for you are all one in Christ. You are one. All of you are one in Christ. So we see that we're with Christ and we see that we're in Christ. So we've had faith, and we've had baptism, and now we have these results of being with Christ and in Christ. And actually, I do believe that in Christ is the most common way to describe believers uh, throughout the entire New Testament. There's a number of ways to describe believers, but it's they're described more often than any other single way as in a relationship with him, as in Christ. So we are with Christ. We've clothed ourselves with him. We are in Christ. We are all together one in him. And we have a, actually a little bit longer version of this in the book of Colossians. There's a renewal in which there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, between circumcised and uncircumcised, between barbarian and Scythian, slave or freeman, but Christ is all and here it is, in all. So, in Christ. We're all with Christ, again, by faith. We're all with Christ. We're all in Christ. And we all are Christ. So now, here's the we. Lastly, we're belonging to him. Verse 29. For if you are Christ. So, are you Christ? Do you belong there? 
uh, have, have do you have faith in him and you're 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 a Christian you're one of those you are with him having clothed yourself uh, with him having expressed and living by faith in him then and this had to be galling to the you know Jewish chauvinist of the audience you're Abraham's offspring your Abraham's seed some translations will say your sons of Abraham heirs by the promise now for most of our purposes here and in modern times there for all our purposes here to 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 say uh, male or female uh, to say son or offspring or children uh, to to be gender inclusive uh, is really the main point and there's <coughs> there's not much lost to to say it either way except that some people don't understand either the English language or the Greek language to know that uh, the male is given uh, as the inclusive one as the universal one but in this place the fact that it's male and, and and masculine actually does make a bit of a difference because in the ancient world in most cultures you can find a few exceptions but in the majority of ancient cultures the daughters did not have inheritance rights now in our modern times the daughters have pretty much equal inheritance rights almost all the time right you know uh, down there at the manor horsley uh, when i go my sons and my daughters are all equally going to get my debts right <laughs> they're going to add up the debts and add up the assets and we're going to equally we're going to dump them out all of them and the girls are going to go hey no no you fellas can have all of that no no the girls the girls will be equally responsible for my estate there are some a few uh holdover customs like i, I was i saw a documentary the other day they only changed this like I think they changed this in the 1980s where uh, if the king of England or queen of England, whoever rules England, if they have a firstborn who's a daughter, the firstborn daughter is now the heir to the throne. It used to be that if the, if the reigning monarch of England only had daughters, uh, then the, his, his title could go to the daughter like we currently have a queen. Well, the English have a queen because there were no sons available. But had there been a brother, the brother would have got it, right? And so uh, uh, now the last uh, couple of heirs in the line is going to, is, is through sons because the sons are the firstborn. But if if that little kid, um, Prince, I, I can't remember his name. Anyway, if that little kid who's like the fourth in line of the throne of England if he ever becomes king, because I don't know if his great grandma is ever going to die, <laughs> but if he ever becomes king, his firstborn child, male or female, will be the, the heir to the throne. And that's the first time it's ever been that way. Because it, it, it hasn't come up since the English changed that law so recently it's never come up. So they may have a queen to take the throne, even though she has a brother. Because always it's been the brother gets it if there is a brother available. In the ancient world, it might have been, in a lot of cultures, even worse than that for the girls. No matter if they had a brother or not, they weren't going to inherit. But in this passage, in this passage, and here's again why the 
masculine is important. It's the male and the female of verse 28 are all heirs in verse 29. And so it's an inheritance. It's a right of inheritance that is inclusive of male and female. And so of the promises to Abraham and all the things that come through Christ as a result, it is an equal opportunity blessing. And in the ancient world, that was basically unheard of. So all these Gentile women and all these (coughs) Gentile men and all these (laughs) Jewish men and all these Jewish women, if they have faith, they are all equally Abraham's children. Now, again, to the Jewish chauvinist, who's always prided himself on his genealogy, which he can trace back to Abraham. Because you think about the Gospels. And the Gospels, what do they do? They trace, it looks like Mary's line back to Abraham, and they trace Joseph's line back to Abraham to show who Christ was. And now he was the heir of David. It wasn't just Jesus could do that. All the Jews whose family had kept their records right, and most of them did, all the people who who weren't a proselyte, all the normal, regular Jews, the man on the street, the normal guy at the temple, they could all trace their lineage back to Abraham. And here's Paul saying, in Christ, these Gentile fellows and gals are just as much an heir of Abraham as you. Can you imagine? Imagine telling them that, but it's true, and we're thankful for it, and we, we're so glad as descendants uh, of Gentiles that this is true, and this is open to us and to all on the basis of faith. Now, chapter 4, we're going to go continue this uh, line of argument about being mature and being free as a result, having finished with our time of the guardianship under the law as opposed to those who say, no, thanks, I'll keep the law. And Paul's really saying, look, you guys are going to get left behind at school while the rest of us go out there and live life. He's going to say, you you need to come and recognize what's in Christ and come to the free station that's there uh, to maturity and belief, not under the old guardianship of the law. Some of them have got way too comfortable there, and they missed the point about what it was about. All right, with that... We see with Christ, in Christ, we are Christ, clothed one, made his child and heir in Abraham. Because why? Justification by faith. Verse 24 and verse 25. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.